Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies. I'm Jacob Ivey, one of the hosts of this channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Jill Kelly about her book, To Swim with Crocodiles, Land, Violence, and Belonging in South Africa, 1800 to 1996, published by Michigan State University Press in 2018. Joe Kelly is an associate professor of African and South African history at Southern Methodist University, and her book is a history of the Unkwonza, a or paying allegiance to, examining through the politics of Table Mountains region in South Africa. Now, this is not the other Table Mountain near the Cape, but what historians like myself think of as the Table Mountain in KwaZulu-Natal. Joe Kelly, welcome. Thank you, Jacob, for inviting me. Oh, thank you very much. So to start off with, it would be wonderful if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to the field of African studies. That's a great question. Um, I actually came to it through literature. Uh, I went to a very small Catholic high school in rural Appalachian, Pennsylvania. And I took an advanced literature course in which there were four young women as students. Uh, We studied with the librarian and she gave us each a novel from a different country. And I happened to get a novel from South Africa. Uh, It was Nadine Gordimer's A Sport of Nature. And I read it at a very impressionable moment in my life. A Sport of Nature is about a young white South African who grows up with two aunts, one of whom is very politically involved in the anti-apartheid movement, the other of whom is very much living a comfortable lifestyle in apartheid South Africa. And the main character is kind of figuring out her place in this world. And it really sparked an interest in me to learn more about South Africa. I came from a place where diversity meant which Catholic church did you go to, the Polish or the Italian one, the Irish one? And so it was really eye-opening for me. Africa was not a large part of my high school curriculum. And by that point, I had already chosen a college that didn't offer much in the way of African history. And so I studied abroad in college. I did a semester in Durban with the School for International Training. And it was really a transformative experience. You know, that's a bit of a cliche that we say about study abroad, but I lived with an E.C. Zulu-speaking family near the university. We took classes with people who I didn't know then were incredibly exciting. But in hindsight, I I think, wow, that was really incredible that I had those experiences as a a college student, as an American college student. Um, And as part of my School for International Training final project, I did oral history interviews with people who had participated in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that kind of solidified my, my choice in a career. I wanted to do something that I could come back to South Africa on a regular basis, that I could nurture the kind of relationships that I had built during that semester. Uh, and so from there, I took a year off after college. Um, I did AmeriCorps uh, with an urban redevelopment authority. Um, but that just solidified the, the decision that I would go back to school and make South Africa part of, of my life. So I attended Michigan State University, uh, where the incredible language resources allowed me to work on EC Zulu language training. And uh, my first year, I did the Fulbright Zulu GPA. And for those who might not know what that is, uh, Fulbright regularly offers these intensive summer language training programs. Uh, EC Zulu is one of the big ones, but I think there have also been ones for Swahili and Yoruba. And it was during that language training where we stayed in both rural homestays and urban homestays that I stumbled upon uh, the topic that would become my book. That's that's fantastic, and and, and it, it, I think it illustrates again. You you say it's a cliche, but you know I, I think you, you and I both we tell our students if you have the chance, study abroad. You know, see the world. You know, be, be, have that experience in the in the front. So then, obviously, um, 
that's the catalyst for this book on the Table Mountain region. But um, you begin the book talking about uh, examining the politics of the region and in, in what you describe as the long durée, you know, that this long scope of history. And admittedly, you know, a, a, a nearly two century period of, of, of scope for this book, I think it's rather, well, Ambitious would be a uh, would be a nice way of describing it. What what inspired you to look at the time frame of this book? You know, between eighteen hundred and nineteen ninety six, um, as you began working on this project. It is indeed ambitious, and I did not set out with those ambitions. Uh, I was initially interested in studying the transition era violence uh, during my homestay for East Zulu. That was two thousand seven. I just happened to with a family of one of the local Nkata leaders who many in the anti-apartheid movement would have described as a local warlord. Uh, the, the nature of the violence meant the nature of the civil war. Perhaps I should pause there and introduce that. You know, conservative estimates suggest that between 1985 and 1996, 20,000 people died in South Africa. 13,000 of those were in KwaZulu-Natal. It's very broadly understood as political violence because of the nature um, in which the leading anti-apartheid movement, the African National Congress, uh, its supporters fought against supporters of Nkata, which was the Zulu ethnic nationalist movement in the region. And so I was very much interested in understanding that time period. And um, the nature of, of the violence at Table Mountain and the surrounding areas in Peter Marinsburg and Durban was such that many, many supporters of the United Democratic Front, the UDF, or the African National Congress, the ANC, fled. And so the community that I stayed in as part of the Zulu GPA, lots of people who had homes that were, um, you know, conducive to supporting an American student while they learned DC Zulu happened to be Akata and Kata affiliated families. Um, and so I stayed with the family of, of one of these local Nkata leaders and all the children wore uh, Nkosi Mangosutu Butalezi t-shirts under their school uniforms. And so I was really interested in understanding why people supported Nkata during this time period and how they came to participate in the violence. And I was particularly interested in women's stories. And when I initially envisioned my dissertation research, I envisioned a project to talk about how women experienced the war and facilitated the violence. But as I started doing my oral history interviews, actually doing my field work, People wanted to talk about this long durée. People wanted to talk about how the violence on the ground as they experienced it, it did unfold under un- unfold across these Nkata ANC UDF lines. But the, the reasons in which they became involved in the violence had to do about land. And for me to understand the way people envisioned land in this conflict, I had to look over the long durée. And that meant that as I moved my research from the dissertation to the book, um, is that I started to move further away from just explaining the violence to really understanding how people engaged with land and how that motivated their action over 200 years. And so in the roundabout way, I did not set out to, to study 200 years of history, but in my oral history interviews, in my archival research, to understand what I was interested in, I needed to look at those 200 years. And and that's, I think, would be a great place for us to start because you sort of begin this discussion with the rising authority of this fascinating figure, Mungoza, you know, one of the key figures, this early Ananda location in British Natal. Could, could you tell us a little bit about um, why he and his sort of early chiefdom is so important to the early history of this Table Mountain region? That's a great question particularly because the way the book works is it's essentially the history of these two chiefdoms that over 200 years engage with one another, both their leaders and their subjects in various ways. Uh, And one of the kind of major fault lines between the two chiefdoms that repeatedly comes 
to the fore is that one of those chiefdoms envisions themselves as having long durée roots in the region as predating colonialism, while the other, um, when they are being derided, they are colonial, colonially appointed chiefs, and their subjects are subjects of stooges of colonialism or apartheid, right? And so there is this division um, in the way people talk about the chiefs of, of Table Mountain, right, as those who have a supposedly legitimate uh, claim to authority and to land because they predate colonialism, um, and those that are in some ways associated with white minority rule. Um, and so Ngoza is one of the first of these colonially appointed leaders, and at no moment is he officially, you know, knighted or, or made a chief, and but he moves into what becomes the colony of Natal from north of the Tukela River. Um, he's kind of a, a product of some succession disputes and some battles north of the Tukela in the heart of the Zulu kingdom. And so he moves into the colony and he allies himself with one of the more infamous figures of, of Natal's history, Theophilus Shepston, the Secretary for Native Affairs, the, the British colonial official in charge of administering Africans. And as many of our listeners will know, um, Shepston is often connected to this system of indirect rule, right, where he would govern Africans as sort of the supreme chief um, and working through intermediaries, the chiefs on the ground with existing authority. Um, but what Shepston did was he negotiated relationships um, and often promised land behind the scenes to leaders with whom he could work, who would be loyal. And so Ngoza comes into the colony and attaches himself to Shepston. And at various points, he begins to accumulate cattle and earn the respect of Shepston. And... What's different from how I talk about Ngoza and then other scholars have treated him, you know, as many treat him as this appointed figure that Shepston gives him the power of being a chief. But I think we need to flip that because if we look at him, he attaches himself to Shepston and through that attachment earns many cattle. Um, but as he earns prestige for uh, his cattle and for his connections, this means that he actually attracts followers um, because he has the resources of an Nkosi, of, of a traditional leader, of, an, of a chief, right? Um, he can build up a following as other traditional leaders would have done prior to colonial rule. Um, and so he's incredibly powerful because he's connected to Shepston, but he becomes incredibly popular amongst his followers um, that even after he dies, there are former subjects who want to remain connected to his family, right? Um, even as Shipson comes to recognize that Ngoza is behaving like a chief, um, he never sees this chieftaincy as something that could be inherited by Ngoza's descendants. But Ngoza's descendants see that very differently. And um, his chieftain at one point is the largest in all of Natal because of all the the subjects he has attracted, many of whom had been moving into the colony for work um, or to escape some of those kind of disputes within the Zulu kingdom. And so he earns this massive follower, following that by the time of his death is unwieldy and begins to splinter in much of the ways that pre-colonial chiefdoms might have splintered, um, that when leaders are not accountable for one reason or another, subjects might begin to rally around an Induna or a headman. Um, and so in this way, Ngoza leaves behind him this massive chiefdom that splinters into a number of smaller polities, um, one of which becomes you know, the center of my book, uh, which is the Mapamulo chiefdom. Yeah, and and, and I, I would say for, for the individuals who have the chance to pick up the book, I think one of the most fascinating components of it is as you're going through this narrative, as, as you're digging through this story, you sort of see this area that began as sort of this, um, you know, this 
singular entity continue to be broken down or broken apart or twisted and changed and altered. Um, and it sort of illustrates the, it, to a large degree the, the malleable way in which this land is transitioned from one group to another. And it, it's just a, a fascinating sequence of events that takes place as you see the, 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 the story progress within this book as a whole. Um, considering that idea and, 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 and these, these, this shift that takes place um, during the 19th century, I wonder if we could move forward a little bit towards the the closing decades of the 19th century. Um, and you talk about this um, changing realm of authority and allegiances. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you see the issues of uh, territoriality and, and personal allegiances competing against one another during this later period in the 19th century. So I haven't yet introduced Ukukonza. And this is what you are getting at when you talk about the issues of authority, right? Um, what I'm talking about here is the type of relationships that were facilitated by Ngoza and other traditional leaders were based upon personal allegiances between the leader and his subjects. Um, there's a popular Isi Zulu proverb, and it's actually not limited to Isi Zulu. Many of the kind of Bantu-speaking languages of Southern Africa share a similar proverb, Nkosi Yumkosi Gabantu, or a chief is a chief by the people, um, suggesting these personal allegiances. The extension of that is a chief is a chief by the people who konza him, or the people who pay allegiance to him who recognize him as leader. And, and so it's into this context that British officials arrive um, in which chiefdoms are political entities bound by personal relationships, bound by familiar rela familial relationships, um, rather than many of the kind of concepts that the British will bring them about these kind of bounded tribes, right? And but over the course of the 19th century, British officials begin laying down boundaries. Um, they begin attempts to bound the chiefdoms by territories. Um, Percy Ngonyama has written about this in one part of uh, northern Natal, um, where he says, Nkosi Yunkosi Gabantu becomes Nkosi Yunkosi Ngatendawo, where a chief is a chief by place, by territory. And Boundaries do begin to be laid down during this colonial period. But one of the arguments that, that I make in this book is even as these boundaries are laid down, this does not mean that people forget this idea that a chief is a chief by the people and that this is a relationship um, bound by personal relationships and by expectations. And to pay allegiance, I expect security in return. And here I envision security very broadly um, in terms of physical physical security in times of violence um, which is which bookends the the book right and um, it begins with this time of violent state building and it ends with the transition era civil war um, as well as the myriad everyday violence in the decades in between of, of forced removals and betterment implementation. And so I think the process of bounding chiefdoms, of, of the colonial attempt to turn personal allegiance into territorial allegiance, it takes much longer than scholars have, have normally acknowledged. And the chiefdoms that I write about, it's only in the 1950s that they actually are entirely legally bounded. But over time, over this late colonial period, over the 19th century, boundaries are being set in some places, but not all. And so that means that there's often this overlap in authority where the colonial government puts down a boundary and people find themselves on the wrong side of the boundary from the person that they recognize as chief, right? And so there's a lot of negotiation. And this is where we can see everyday people showing up in the uh, colonial archive, right? When they ask to tr formally transfer their allegiance and, and and they use this overlap in personal and territorial authority in, in ways to improve their everyday life. And some people, you know, would try to get out of public works, the colonial 
authority required chiefs to call people up for service on the roads and other um, infra- infrastructure projects. And so some people would promise to switch their allegiance um, if the new chief would get them out of public works, right? Um, in other cases, people are really committed to their existing personal allegiances, that they refuse to transfer allegiance when they're found across a boundary line. Um, In fact, that's how some of the chiefdoms that I write about in the early part of the book come into existence, right? And is that they are calling upon personal relationships um, or when a leader is not being particularly accountable, they strike out to find someone who could be personally accountable um, in a way that their previous leader had not. And, and and again, I think that the, the way that's traced throughout this uh, throughout this earlier period, you know, but before we get into the uh, part of the twentieth century, I think is an, an incredibly fascinating progression along those lines. I, I, I would ask, though, as is typically the case, you know, when 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 we're teaching the history of South Africa, um, a, a shift takes place in the in the early twentieth century, and I think what's fascinating is you sort of give a. Uh, a two-pronged examination of this shift, though obviously the resonance of it is going to be much further felt. And that, of course, is going to be the Bambato Rebellion of 1906, combined or in conjunction with uh, the build-up to the infamous 1913 Land Act. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how local policies change and land issues seem to continue to evolve as South Africa, as we know it, the Union of South Africa begins to be formed. Well, what's really important when we think about land policies in this turn of the century period is in Natal, outside of Peter Marisburg, in this Table Mountain region, for much of the period I'm talking there aren't many white settlers out in the far rural area, or excuse me, not far rural, but outside of the city, much of the land outside of Peter Marysburg comes to be held by speculators or the British crown. And so Africans resident in the region, or even some of them who are newer that move into the colony um, and put down stakes around Ngoza or any of his successors, The land might legally on paper belong to white settlers, but on the ground, Africans continue to reproduce their homesteads and agriculturally in much the same ways they had earlier. Um, But by the turn of the century, that begins to change as more and more white settlers bring the land into production and set up their own homes in the region. Um, And so what's particularly interesting is how often people are moving. Right. Um, that, that some of these contests uh, between pers- or the, the overlap between personal and territorial authority comes as people are moving because they are being forced off the land by uh, new families, new white families that are moving into the region to, to put the land into their own agricultural use. Um, and at many points, some people, some Africans will sign on as what we understand as labor tenants, right? They work the land in exchange for um, giving part of their product over to the landowner uh, or by doing labor for the landowner. Um, and so the ni- 1913 part of your question, right? It's often treated as this momentous occasion that changes everything. And certainly it has a a massive effect, but it is much more drawn out. It is not overnight, right? And because the decade before, the decade after at Table Mountain, people are already experiencing some of the changes um, that will be cemented in the 1913 Land Act. Yeah, I I think it's particular how how you point out it's 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 really not until 1936 with the Native Trust and Land Act where you actually see the, the full fulfillment of 1913 in the eyes of many individuals. Um, so speaking of this this um, this movement of people, uh, I think one of the more fascinating um, 
instances uh, or uh, situations you examine is the is this uh, Nigel Dam project that uh, takes place in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, not, not only because I think it's a wonderful case study for, for readers to sort of look at the uh, social, uh, political, and cultural dynamics that are going on this period, but I, it's also a fantastic example of relocation or removal policy being implemented um, by the South African government well before the formal apartheid era. Um, I, I, I want to ask, do you think this project contributed to the increased constraints on land? And how do you think it also spills over into some of these uh, violent conflicts that take place in this region? I, I'm thinking particularly the uh, um, the, the, the wedding uh, disputes that uh, take place, like the one in, in July 1937 and the like. Yes, that's a great question, Jacob. Uh, before I answer it, I want to point out that to you and I, this Table Mountain is the Table Mountain, right? We are, we are embedded in, in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, but for other people, you know, why do I, why should I care about this small, tiny region that I've never heard of before um, that, that is known as the other Table Mountain, right? And what's special about this region is that it is really at the heart of this kind of British experiment in, in direct rule, right, in, in how to administer African on a shoestring. And so it is It is close to the colonial capital. It'll later be close to the provincial capital. And the dam will be constructed in its midst to provide water for the city of Durban. Uh, and, and so in many ways, it is this kind of special place that what's happening there is really indicative of what is happening in the larger region. Um, but also what makes it such an excellent place to study and such a lens for understanding these larger trends is because of how much it's in the archive. Um, from the earliest colonial officials, they were working with local African leaders. They were recording local um, kind of oral accounts and histories of the region and because of the proximity to the colonial capital, it meant many of these African leaders were regular, regularly showing up in the magistrate's office with complaints or requests. And when it comes to the dam, this means we have an incredible amount of documentation about the region. And because of the construction of this infrastructure project that was ultimately designed to benefit white South Africa. Um, and, and so that really allowed me to flesh out uh, and then com- the, the abundance of archival records allowed me to flesh out some of these things and then compare them to the oral accounts of the many people that I interviewed. Um, and so do I think the Nagel Dam, you know, shaped these in- increased constraints on land? Uh, Absolutely. And because what was so special about the way that its construction unfolded was how local people created and adapted their oral histories of land access to work around the dam. Right. So um, the dam was being planned in the early 1930s. I think ground broke in 1935. Um, if I'm correct. And for years, years before the construction, there are white officials in the region planning, mapping out where the dam will be laid, where the pipes will go. And it creates this incredible sense of, of anxiety. Will my home be removed? Will my agricultural lands be impeded by the new road to the dam, right? And so there's an incredible amount of anxiety, right? One of the things that that shaped how I interpreted a lot of the violence is Jonathan Glassman's work on violence, right? We can understand how historical wrongs might explain violence, but that doesn't explain why people made those historical wrongs personal, right? That, that they would participate in violence. And projects like the Nagel Dam made previous land denials personal, right? Um, And so the accounts of the Inyavu chieftain who lived at Table Mountain, according to their oral traditions, 
for since time immemorial, right? And that they that they controlled the land in the region historically, right? And then you have the chiefdom of Ngoza and its successor states and the the Majosi, sorry, the successor chiefdoms, the Majosi, the Mkize, the Mumisa, the Mapamulu, they built new oral accounts to connect themselves to the land, right? As as the shift is happening from land, uh, sorry, of of chief by the people to chief by the land, people are creating new ways to tie themselves to the land using these older practices of, of oral accounts. Um, I actually, I borrow a phrase from Christopher Lee's work. Um, he calls it the genealogical imagination, right? The way that people connect themselves to one another and connect themselves to the land through these oral accounts. The Nagel Dam is remembered in oral accounts as this breaking point, right? Before the dam, after the dam. Before the dam, after the dam. And peoples that were displaced for the construction of the dam adjust their oral accounts of the histories of their chiefdoms and the families that that have governed their chiefdoms to incorporate this dam, right? So many um, subjects of the Mapamolo chief were moved during the construction of the dam. And so their oral accounts come to create a story in which the land they live on now was given to them as part of a trade for the land on which the Nagel Dam was constructed, right? And so you have ways that people are using this historical practice, uh, this this use of, of oral stories, of oral histories, uh, adapting to address the Nagel Dam. And as these forced removals take place, as you mentioned, you know, well before the onset of apartheid, um, it enables people to re-envision their connections with the land and create these new stories that across the 1960s, 70s, 80s, as the violence break out, will shape their understanding of their rights to the lands. It'll shape their the what they want from their traditional leaders, um, security in land tenure, security from conflict over land. Oh, that, and I, no, please continue because I think I think you're 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 hitting on I think uh, obviously one of the 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 key elements of why this long durée is so important because without that long scope of history, you know, it it, it doesn't give us the the the, the origin point, the, the the catalyst for some of these later conflicts, which you know just just seem to you know continue you know throughout generation after generation during this period. So to to start to transition into understanding the, the civil war at the end of apartheid, what happens at the dam is incredibly important because the Native Affairs Department has agreed to exchange Ananda, part of Ananda location. Ananda location was where all of the Africans under chiefs were supposed to live. Right? They're not supposed to live in the cities. Very few should live on, on white farms unless they are serving as labor tenants. And so they agree, the Native Affairs Department agrees to give up a portion of Inanda location for the construction of the dam in exchange for another parcel of land. Um, and so the city of Durban, to construct the dam, buys adjoining farms from white farmers. Um, but those white farmers have considerable amount of power, right? They can negotiate with their local legislatures to defend their rights in a way that African residents could not. And so... Some of the white farmers sell willingly. Um, one family in particular agrees to sell most of their land, but they maintain the most desirable piece of land. It's about a thousand acres of, of kind of prime agricultural land. And so Nagel, the Nagel Dam is constructed. People are forcefully removed from their homes onto this newly purchased land. And cutting across the center of these chiefdoms is this highly desirable piece of land. Um, that the uh, the white family will not leave for another decade, um, but once they leave, um, the successor of the Native Affairs Department under apartheid Bantu Affairs uh, will not give that piece of land to any of the local Africans, and what that means is it really sets the scene 
as land constraints increase, as apartheid passes legislation that enables forced removals to happen on a much larger scale. Um, all of those things set the scene for the ways that people will see that land as belonging to them, um, and that in the context of political violence, this will become one way of, of competing for the land, is, is mapping different claims on the land onto the political violence of the late 80s and early 90s. Fantastic, fantastic. And and before we move into the 80s, I, I do have to at least ask you a little bit about what I thought was one of the more enjoyable sections of the book, and that was your discussion of women's resistance movements during the early apartheid era, uh, specifically uh, how they, and I, I adore this term, uh, how they, quote, uh, were resisting the extra burdens of betterment. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how women were, were a pivotal part of this early resistance period. Of course, um, this is connected to the dam, um, because as Africans were moved from Inlanda location onto these new South African native trust farms governed by the Native Affairs Department and then Bantu Affairs, um, they were not allowed to move and, and live their lives the way they would have before they were removed. Um, at the same time that the Nagel Dam was being constructed, South African planners were part of this kind of global consideration of, of betterment schemes, of using the land more wisely to ensure um, its conservation. Right? And as lots of Africans are being moved out of the cities, and especially um, after apartheid with forced removals and being moved onto the locations, White authorities have to figure out how to conserve that land. How can they make the land hold all of the people that they are going to remove there? Um, and so Africans that were displaced for the dam, um, rather than set up their homesteads as they may have previously, um, had to set up homesteads as they had been marked out by the government, um, by the agricultural department. And so there were areas where you, res where you could set up your residence. There were areas where you could raise your cattle, and there were areas... Um, that were set up for uh, for plowing and planting. And so people already feel a great sense of grievance because the ways in which they've organized their homes is being disrupted in addition to the displacement. <clears throat> um, but with the nature of migrant labor, this means that women are often tied to these changes that are happening on the ground. Um, and so that as men are working in the city and um, with the proximity to Peter Maritzburg, um, this meant that many men would be gone during the week. They might be able to return home on the weekend. Um, but during the week, women were responsible for a lot of these changes that came with betterment planning. And so what particularly drove some of their resistance was the cattle dipping tanks that that much of the labor that came with betterment planning was being pushed onto women. Women were responsible for maintaining the cattle dip tanks and also filling them with water. And so this became an incredible source of grievance. And, and in 1959, they pick up stones and tear down the cattle dipping tanks. And this is happening in the months after the Cato Manor, riot, Cato Manor riots in Durban, um, when women were attacking beer halls. Um, and so this is the kind of rural, rural manifestation of grievances against the government and how the government intervened in daily lives and the ability of families to care for themselves and, and provide for themselves. And, and I, I, again, invite people to go through that session because I, I quite enjoy it. This, this idea of this, this crowd of women just hurling stones at these, at the, at the, at, at these tanks is just, a, the, the, the image is just hilarious and wonderful in my mind when, when, when I, when, when I try to imagine how, how it may have looked on that front. Uh, I feel similarly, I don't want to get too far ahead, um, but this will be the subject of my next book. Uh, the, the, as you say, this image of women picking up stones, and, and there are a lot of other um, wonderful stories of, of kind of women's militancy that, uh, that we talk about fantastic. Well, uh, well, we... 
need to talk about the the, the figure who bookends uh, the the book in total, and that's uh, Chief uh, Lovenzima, um, this uh, gentleman who was installed in 1973, um, incredibly outspoken figure for the uh, KwaZulu Legislative Assembly, a member of the Congress of Traditional Leaders of South Africa. In, in your book, he really symbolizes this this struggle. Um, in some ways against the political violence that rocked the Table Mountain period, uh, even being granted the moniker of the peace chief. Um, he's a, a person who I think to a large degree symbolizes this this turmoil of the 1980s. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about him and what you think he, he represents for our wider understanding of this period. He's a, an incredibly fascinating individual and an incredibly complex inner individual. And when we think about some of these figures that loom large in anti-apartheid history, I appreciate what he offers us in his complexity and that we cannot easily romanticize him um, because of his complexities, right? As you said, he um, is appointed chief in 1973 and he is the Nkosi of the Mapamola chiefdom, right? Um, and so his great-grandfather had been appointed by a colonial official, or, or rather recognized by a colonial official, um, because there were many local people on the ground who were looking for an alternative to another um, unaccountable chief. Um, and, and so the first Mapamola chief, Moguzu, um, became chief in this context in which people are saying, we need an accountable leader and the colonial government says, here, let's try Muguzu. Um, and so um, he was only the fourth chief of his chiefdom um, that had been formed in 1905. And so he becomes chief in 1973, a very young man at the time, uh, and almost immediately becomes embroiled in the legislative policies of the KwaZulu Banti stand. Um, and so to, to pause here um, and, and introduce the Legislative Assembly, um, part of the apartheid plan to segregate South Africa was not only racially, but also according to ethnicity. And so in the wake of the construction of the dam at Table Mountain, um, that's when we see the formal laying down of boundaries around chiefdoms. Um, in 1957, the Mapamolo and the Inyavu at Table Mountain both accepted the idea of tribal authorities. They established um, the Mapamolo Tribal Authority and the Inyavu Tribal Authority. This meant that surveyors went out and measured the chiefdom, laid down, finished laying down beacons, and really bounded the chiefdoms in their entirety for the first time. And each of those tribal authorities would be part of a regional authority in which several tribal authorities would come together to govern uh, kind of land and water implementation, provide governance for rural Black South Africans. Um, but the third tier of this Bantu authority system was the, the ethnic level, the Zulu level, right? Um, and so the tribal authorities came together under regional authorities. The regional authorities came together under the KwaZulu Bantustan. And this was governed by the KwaZulu Legislative Assembly, in which a number of individuals were appointed by nature of being chiefs, and others were elected in rather questionable elections um, across the KwaZulu Bantustan. Um, and so he is appointed initially um, because of being a chief um, and initially becomes embroiled in these politics over who should run the legislative assembly. Um, this is where we have to talk about Nkosi Mangosutu Butulezi, who looms large in South African history as someone who allied himself with the apartheid government. Um, and so for many scholars, you know, that is what we immediately go to. Um, we sh I should mention here that there's been a lot of romanticization and um, kind of misplaced nostalgia for him recently as he announced his retirement. Um, but um, he was not always the apartheid stooge that we now understand him to be. And um, when he um, came into 
power in the 70s, the apartheid government was not sure that he was someone with whom they could work. And so when Nkosi Mshlabunzima Mapamulo enters the legislative assembly, it's this moment where the apartheid government is working out whether or not it will be the Zulu king, Goodwill Zuelatini, who will run the legislative assembly and, and the Bantu stand, or whether it will be someone like Nkosi Butulezi. And, and Mshlabunzima, Nkosi Mshlabunzima, sides himself with the king, with the Zulu king. And so he becomes, there are a number of these parties that start to rally rally around the king and argue that he should have power within the legislative assembly. Um, but Buccellese works very hard and very quickly to sideline those efforts. And so this is where we start to see the young Nkosium Schlabenzima as a bit of a, a complex figure, um, because on the one hand, um, he's allied himself with the Zulu king, um, someone whom he recognizes as having historical power in the region, um, but also in doing so um, is very much working within Bantu authorities and working within the apartheid system um, instead of against it. Um, uh, and so as a result of his participation in these parties, Butelezi um, sidelines him and has, has him suspended from the legislative assembly. Um, uh, but Mshlabanzima does not go quietly. He uh, is outspoken when it comes to the press um, and really earns his reputation as a maverick leader willing to go against Butelezi as Butelezi is moving from someone within the anti-apartheid struggle um, to ally to you know moving away from the anti-apartheid movement and into the arms of the apartheid government, um, and so this is where Mshlabanzi earns this reputation as this rebel chief. Right, um, even in 1983, um, members of the Inkate Youth Brigade, um, the kind of the young men's wing of of the ethnic nationalist movement in Kata, um, they beat him unconscious outside of the legislative assembly, and. Um, but as this conflict is brewing over land in, at Table Mountain, Mshlabanzima kind of steps back um, and kind of quiets some of his resistance, some of his, his maverick actions um, to ensure that he can lay claims on the land in question and uh, hopefully earn the support of Butelezi as he does that. Um, but it doesn't last long. Uh, he makes peace with Butelezi only briefly, um, during which time he starts to develop land back at Table Mountain, the, the land that had um, come into ownership of the Bantu affairs um, only after, after Bantu authorities and tribal authorities' boundaries had been created. Uh, and so by the late 1980s, you know, there is this kind of quiet peace between Butelezi and Umslavanzima, but as violence begins to unfold in the region, that peace will prove to be short-lived. Umslavanzima uh, takes the violence very much to heart. Um, as a member of the Legislative Assembly, he represents Mpumalanga Township, um, which was an area in which some of the worst violence was unfolding. Um, and so he saw firsthand some of the violence there, um, but also um, in the midst of this war breaking out, people began leaving their homes and looking for land, looking for places where they could live in security. And Umshlabanzima had access to this piece of land abutting his chiefdom on which very few Africans lived because the apartheid government was settling very few people there. Um, and so Mshlabanzima began to allocate land there to refugees from the violence. Families came that were affiliated both with the African National Congress and the United Democratic Front, as well as Nkata, or who claimed no political allegiance. Um, and so this is where we get back to this language of Ukukonza, is these refugees turn to him as a man of peace, as a man who will offer them security in this time of violence. And this is where he earns the reputation of a peace chief, um, you know, shifting away from the kind of maverick rebel status of his youth um, and into, you know, a leader who's trying to offer security. Yeah, absolutely. But, but of course, as you 
don't even give any suspense to the readers as, as you begin with the book. You know, it, it all comes to an end in 1991 when he's assassinated. Um, but I, I want to just sort of uh, address this issue. You, you say he sort of has a mixed um, or a complicated legacy, and, and aren't those, as you rightly say, our, our favorite historical figures, the ones that we, we sometimes have to look at with both suspicion and reverence all at the same time. Um, and, and I think you, you you hit right on it in both the beginning and conclusion of your book when you say this um, this, um, this Kunza system is a lens to explore the history of the relationship between chief, subject, and land. But as, as you begin concluding your book, I think you also begin to start asking relevant questions about a sort of reimagining or, or, or revising of history that's taking place as a result of this period. Uh, I think specifically the uh, new tomb that uh, Mabunzima has been given by the ANC, I believe it was in 2014. Um, you know, his recent receiving of the Order of uh, Lutuli in gold, which I understand you are a part of. Um, I suppose my question is, what do you think the long-term legacy of, of this practice of affiliation has to our current situation in South Africa, um, or potentially more controversially, you know, what do you think are the long-term prospects for traditional rulerships within this region? So as Mshlabunzima began earning the reputation of the peace chief, he began to capture the attention of political activists, right? Um, the ANC in exile is uncertain about what to do with traditional leaders, right? They reject the Bantu authority system of the apartheid government outright. Um, they celebrated traditional leaders like Nkosi Albert Latuli, the one-time president of the ANC, who refused to serve within the Bantu authority system. Um, but while it's vocally opposed, behind the scenes, the ANC is keeping in touch with traditional leaders with, they, with whom they think they might work, right? Tim Gibbs has written about this for uh, the Transkai. Um, but in KwaZulu, it's originally Buchelese, right? They're working with him behind the scenes um, before, you know, 1975, when he really makes the break and, and kind of starts to work with the apartheid government more, more obviously. And with the violence racking KwaZulu and Natal, the ANC really thinks they need an Isi Zulu-speaking leader, right? Um, as you know, the 80s progress, as it moves towards the transition, as they think about what a new South Africa might look like and, and who might vote, they need some traditional leaders from KwaZulu-Natal to bring them into the anti-apartheid fold um, to try to introduce themselves to the region and to gain a, a, a greater foothold. Um, and so. Um, Mshlaben Zima becomes the first president of the Congress of Traditional Leaders of South Africa, Contralesa. Uh, and what happened was there were some UDF, United Democratic Front, organizers um, in um, Amelvit-Watersrand um, who were looking towards KZN, and they knew Mshlaben Zima as someone who had previously been brazen enough to oppose Buchelese and now was um, calling for peace in the region. Um, Mshlabenzima had organized a, <clears throat> or had attempted to organize a state investigation into the causes of the violence. He failed when the government, you know, ludicrously said there's no failure in law and order. Um, and so they were aware of him and they brought him into this new organization that you can tell by its title, the Congress of Traditional Leaders of South Africa, while it claimed to be not sided with any liberation organization, in fact, it fell under the banner of the United Democratic Front, which was an umbrella organization for all kinds of civic, student, sport, religious, and, and in this case, traditional leader groups. And and Mshlabanzima was part of a delegation that flew to Zambia to meet with the ANC in exile in 1989 and to say, we're with you. We are anti-apartheid chiefs. We will work on your behalf. But what's in it for us? What does the future look like? Mshlabanzima had this vision of leadership by the people. 
rather than by the land, um, although he'd certainly used that definition to access more land um, and to bring more land under his governance. Um, and this was the same language that the African National Congress would use. Uh, in a press statement after this meeting, the African National Congress called upon this definition of, of leadership, the chief by a people, and to say that colonialism and apartheid had damaged that definition and that a new South Africa would work towards democracy, but also would recognize the place of traditional authority within it. Um, and so Mshlavanzima is very much at the center of that, of ensuring that a new South Africa will recognize traditional leadership. Um, but also, um, you know, he had beliefs in people's rights to land. Um, in fact, you know, he often, many people that I interviewed would speak to the receipts that they had, you know, the um, receipts is not the correct word, right? The documentation they had um, that gave them rights to land in the region, right? Um, and they recall him saying that everyone deserved rights in land, right? And, and so he had a rather complex picture of what this new South Africa might look like. Uh, but that was very much cut short with his death. Um, his successor, had a different vision of, of traditional leadership. And at one point, um, Mshlavanzima's successor, Patakile Holomisa, Nkosi Patakile Holomisa, um, said that he saw the leadership as the position from which to lead the people, right? Rather than by the people, but from which he would lead, right? Um, and this marks a, a very different vision from that which the ANC originally had promised um, and which Mishla Benzema bought into. Uh, and so, you know, um, like many of our anti-apartheid heroes, it's hard to say what would happen um, had they lived um, and whether or not he would have continued to be that beacon of, of you know, a complex vision um, or if he would have become embroiled in some of the more problematic issues surrounding land and traditional authority in contemporary South Africa. Um, Many traditional leaders have been abusing their control of land, and particularly in areas that are mineral-rich. Um, and, and, and so it's hard to say what, what would have happened, but he certainly had a more complex vision than has been operating on the ground right now. Um, many of the bills that were contested in the last a decade or so, you know, would have given more power to traditional leadership. And with the overlap of customary law and, you know, kind of South African democracy, and many of the rights of women and sexual minorities are not necessarily being recognized by traditional leaders. And, and, and so we can date that to this moment, right, where the ANC is saying we need traditional leaders in this transition, um, let's bring them on board. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's that eternal question that we have of the, that, those what ifs uh, for, for for individuals like them. Well, well, Joe, we've taken up a good deal of your time, um, but uh, before we it's go, my pleasure. But before we go, and you've given us a hint already, so so you cannot you cannot leave us hanging on this front. Um, uh, it would be great if you could talk to us about what the next project is. I. I, I we, I'm going to steal some of your thunder, but you know, you, you've been awarded a Fulbright Scholar Grant. Um, you'll be going to South Africa. So what are we going to look forward from you in the near future? I'm going to continue to be thinking about violence. Um, but as, as we mentioned earlier, um, I am interested in these 1959 rural rebellions. And it grew out of the chapter that you mentioned earlier, um, that here is this moment when Apartheid is bringing traditional authority, traditional leaders into their system of governments more closely. Um, and initially, many traditional leaders agree and they buy into tribal authorities. Um, but in 1959, women across Natal revolt. And this seems to, at Table Mountain, have made their traditional leaders walk the tightrope much more carefully. Um, is that 
while they may have become accountable to the apartheid government, people still remembered that chiefs needed to be chiefs by the people. Um, and so women's actions at Table Mountain really curbed the chief's chief's ability to collaborate with the apartheid government. And so I'm interested in looking beyond Table Mountain in this new project. Um, I've already begun to do some interviews. Um, and so um, I'm this new project is going to look at the ways in which rural women were connected to the cities via migrant labor and their connections to organizations like the African National Congress. Many of, One of the things that I'm interested in is that some of the songs that the women used during the protests in 1959 very much come out of the defiance campaign of 1952 in which um, the Congress Alliance adopted civil disobedience. And so I'm interested in looking at women's connections to the rural women's connections to the urban areas, to the defiance campaign, to um, the African National Congress Women's League, the Federation of South African Women. I'm interested in the songs that they use, but I'm also interested in the way that women's militancy shapes the behavior of the men in their life, their husbands, fathers, and sons. Uh, there's an incredible case that I've stumbled upon where the women in Harding in south of Natal marched to the magistrate's office to demand changes and promptly get arrested. Uh, and the court cases of the women suggest that their husbands were ashamed, uh, that their husbands then were so ashamed that they picked up their weapons and marched into town to release the women from the jail. And this sent all of the local white residents into um, you know, a panic. They all descended upon the hospital and barricaded themselves for fears that, uh, <laughs> that, that a race riot was impending. And, uh, and so I, I'm interested in understanding this relationship of how women's militancy, their connections to the cities and the major organizations shaped their relationships uh, with, with their families in rural South Africa in the 1950s. That, that sounds like a fantastic project. And, and just, just that incident alone, I'm looking forward to reading about. And I'm sure our audiences as well. Well, Jill, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for talking with us. And thank you for this, this wonderful addition to the history of KwaZulu-Natal. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob, for excellent questions and for inviting me. Thank you. Take care.